coming up on today's episode of Built. A lot of companies, these high-growth startups, go from selling feature function to value. And this is also an area where CEOs can really look and ask themselves the question, can my current leader take me to the next place? Krista Anderson Copperman is a board member at top companies like Asana. Before that, she spent six years as chief customer officer at Okta and 14 years before that at Salesforce in a variety of go-to-market leadership roles. In other words, she's seen both hyper-growth done right and operational excellence at scale. And guess what? Success in these high-stakes environments is much more about the who than the what. Sure, the what is important, your product and your strategy to win your market, but the what doesn't really work if you don't have the right who on your team. Most leaders are bad at assessing their teams through this lens. The most common pitfall is focusing on what somebody has historically done versus their ability to do what's required at the next stage of growth. Yes, this leader did build your go-to-market engine and got you to 25 or 50 million of ARR, but are they the right leader to take you to 100, 200, 500 million of ARR? That's an exceedingly rare phenomenon, but most leaders realize this way too late. Then there's also the trap of personal loyalty, of having been in the trenches with this person for years and remembering everything you've gone through together. The list goes on of cognitive biases we all fall into when trying to assess people and teams through this more objective lens. Krista has a unique knack for meeting the key leaders on a team and quickly knowing whether they're gonna make it or not in the next phase of the company's growth. And that's exactly why she's in demand as an advisor and a board member for top companies like Asana. In this episode of Build, Krista unpacks the mental models and pattern recognition she uses to assess whether a company's current team is the right team for the future. There's a lot of gold in this episode for leaders of all stripes, so let's dive right in with Krista anderson Copperman. So you recently told me that founders need to always be asking themselves the question, do I have the team for the future? So what does that mean? And why is that such an important question for founders to be constantly asking themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, if I think back to my early career and my days, and particularly at Salesforce, Salesforce is a company that is really cognizant of kind of moving through leadership and moving people into different roles to challenge them professionally, but also just to provide kind of a different level of insight into the business that it may or may not have had before. And at Salesforce, we always joke like, okay, I've had, you know, six bosses in six years. And that is kind of funny. And and it is a little inconvenient, right? And I am not recommending that anybody has six different bosses in six years. But what I really learned through that was that We were phenomenal in my time there, and I'm guessing they still are, but in my time there of really assessing the leadership team in a high growth company and really understanding, like, does this team have what it takes or do these individuals have what it takes to make it to the next level? And most high growth companies always, while they may not have a formal three-year plan, they certainly have an idea of what their revenue is going to look like in three years or what they want it to look like in three years operationally how to get there or whatnot, who knows. But when I when I say like, do I have the right team for the future? Think thinking about that team in three years and even five years, because three years, particularly from an executive perspective, is not a long time to have somebody at your company. Um, and in many cases, like they're just getting started with their real value after three years, you know? So so taking a look at that three to five year horizon and saying, do I believe this person can really take me there. And, you know, a lot of tech companies think about this, that these 
50 million milestones, 100 million milestones, 250 million in revenue. And a lot of companies are at that 50. And if you think about the profile of it takes and, and you think about sales, right? Or really, I think this is uh, pertinent in any function, but sales is an easy example. If you think about the profile of a sales leader that can get a company from zero to 10 million or zero to 50 million, and then you think about the comp- the first profile of someone to get you to 250, they're often, sometimes they can make the leap, but it's often two very different people because from zero to 10 or zero to 50, you're scrappy. You're in it. You're selling. Like you're doing the work and leading a small team. Whereas at 250, you're leading a team and you're really figuring out like what are the scalable, repeatable things so that we can do this more efficient, faster, bigger deals, you know, faster closes, that kind of thing. And and, and that doesn't ne- always come naturally. Like that particular skill set that I just talked about is often you've done it before. Yeah. The What's coming through to me on that is um, one of my favorite startup sayings is first time founders focus on the what uh, almost exclusively, uh, or at least first. And then second time founders or experienced founders, people who know what they're doing, they'll focus on the who first before the what, uh, or at least the who and the what as equal importance. You're getting at some of this common traps that people fall into when they're um, either thinking about that question or not thinking about that question. What other common traps do people fall into? Is it, I imagine a loyalty thing comes in there, but what else do you see that causes people to be blind to this in the first place? I mean, I think, so I've been, I, I transitioned to board and advisory work two and a half years ago. And I'll say this as the disclaimer, it is so much easier to see the forest through the t- trees when you're not involved in the day-to-day work of building a business. Like it just is. Um, and, and the thing that I have noticed over the last two and a half years is when I'm talking to these companies and thinking about, you know, do I want to enter? Do I want to help them? Do I want to join their board? Whatever. It's really clear to me the who, like, do you have the right team and the companies that are going to be successful? It is the who. So I want to underscore the importance of where you started with your question. I mean, the what? Yeah, you have to have product market fit. There has to be real pain. You have to build the product. Like all those things, yes, are very critically important. But once you get that, the who has outsized importance because you have to make sure that you have the right team that can get you to that 250. And the biggest, so, and I wouldn't even say they're mistakes because I think they're human. Like I, I get it. It's not like, oh, you were making a mistake. They're very human things to do. If you think about it, you you started this company, you selected this group of people that were incredibly capable to do the, usually it's the the what are we doing, right? in that first stage. And that is really hard work. Like it's hard, hard work. You are in it, you know, how many ever hours a day and you guys are together and you usually have crappy office space or maybe now with COVID you're all working remotely, so it's a little better, but like it is, it's, it's a bonding experience. You were incredibly bonded, incredibly close with those people and you built this thing and it's pretty cool. And now you're getting traction and you're seeing this result and you're celebrating together and it's starting to become, it's still hard work, but the the scale from hard work, like just the grind to fun is starting to shift a little bit because, wow, this is fun. Like we're having some success. And if you apply that to any relationship that you have in your life outside of work, like, yeah, I want to party with that person. Like I want to enjoy it. I want to have a good time. And so you are, it's, I mean, you said it, it's loyalty is one way to put it, but it is this incredible, really unique bond. And it's exceptionally hard for anyone to look at that bond and say, this is still really functional. Like this is working. We work well together. Everything's going fine. But 
you are not the person who can get me to 250. And human nature, what human nature will do is, and, and this is goodness, again, like this is good. We want those people to get to 250 million. We believe that they can make it because they did it with us. And so the question, like, that's just hard. That's hard. That's like, you know, getting out of a really good relationship, or I can't think of the right comparison, but it seems almost um, in many ways in the context of relationships, it just doesn't seem like it makes sense. But in this, it does, because if you think about that really good spot that your relationship is in, but then somebody in that, let's you know, pod stops performing in the same way. And so when you think about that scale of work to fund, that starts going back the other way because that person isn't delivering what you need them to. And so then that once phenomenal relationship starts to erode and that you that thing that you built and that thing that you did together is a little bit, um, I guess, like stained for lack of a better term or, you know, it's not the same because you let it go too far. And I think that's a really personal way to appeal to founders to think about this. Like you want to end on a high note. We did this awesome thing. It's never going to be easy to let somebody go or to move on. But um, that's the biggest thing that I see is like this bond and this loyalty and this relationship. That's the biggest obstacle people have. Yeah. There, there is a key distinction between person and role. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times that's the same thing in everybody's mind. Um, but dis, dis, uh, sort of disaggregating those two and breaking those two apart and say, I can love this person. Mm -hmm. more than anything in the world. And I could love them and all of the things they've brought to our team and all the things they've done. But let me talk about this role and the role that we're going to need for the next you know, phase of growth, whatever it is. Is that person the right fit for that role? Uh, and you can be a little bit more objective and dispassionate about it. You can still be human. You can still be kind in the way that you deliver that feedback. But having this juxtaposition of person versus role is an unlock to me um, and, and super um, helpful. And it, one thing, I guess, getting into some of the specifics here, on what founders uh, experience and what founders the day-to-day -day looks like. A lot of times founders, or, or almost all the time, founders have one core strength uh, or one core superpower, and that comes from their background. And so for folks that are listening right now that are in that position, I'm that product engineering founder, or I'm that go-to-market founder, I have a blind spot on the other side. How do you address that uh, in this context of evaluating, you know, do you have the team for the future? Yeah, it, it's... Um... I mean, I see it all the time. And in the best CEOs, what I see them doing is being really honest and saying, I, I don't know anything about go-to-market or I don't know anything about product engineering. Um, I can interview somebody and kind of see if they'll be a good fit for the team and if they understand our space, that kind of thing. But um, the easiest way, and you don't see a lot of CEOs doing it, which is really interesting to me. I don't know why. I think I don't know if it's that there's this idea of like these people have to have a formal relationship with me or they have to be on my board, um, but surround yourself with people who have the opposite skill. So if you're the uh, founder who's got kind of the engineering product stuff nailed, surround when you think about your board, obviously you're going to have your investors, but you're going to have your independents. You're going to have some advisors that are surrounding you. Think about those people. Who do I want to bring in who can really work with me in a one-on-one -on -one basis? Maybe you're not ready for an independent on your board or you don't have space right now, but who do I need to work with me to help me understand what great looks like at $250 million in a sales leader? What great looks like at $500 million, a billion? And 
do they have the network? Are they willing to bring me into their network, not only from a recruiting perspective, but from a coaching perspective? Like, can I get these people in, in addition to this individual, but will they share their people with me? And there are so many people out there who will do that. They're like, I mean, people love talking about their experiences and, you know, what's worked and what's not. And obviously you have to make sure that you're choosing well um, and that you're choosing the right people from really successful companies. And it takes some work networking to get there. But anybody who's venture backed, most venture companies have these relationships. And so you just have to ask. First off, um, lean on others so, so you can outsource and kind of lean on their brain. And then per your point of what is good look like, what does that future role look like? What should I be solving for that I'm not currently thinking about today? And like really leaning on those outside experts for the who, not just the what, is huge. Yep. Yeah, 100%. And I think in that scenario, you do, if you're having, you know, somebody come in and get involved in your team, it, it's sometimes just easier to have them in an advisory aspect. That's really easy to do. And it's not usually a cash scenario if you're worried about those types of things. Getting those people involved and just saying, like, hey, will you, I just want you to meet with my go-to-market leader or leaders. And I want you just to kind of have the conversation. And the conversation that I usually have is super casual. Like, I don't ask them to prepare anything for the call because I don't want to freak them out. I don't want them to feel like they're being graded. Um, I will say, like, just, you know, the standard and really generic, what are your, what are you super excited about? And what are your challenges? And I ask, you know, I usually have some context from others around what are the growth rates look like? And certainly some leading questions from if, if there are concerns. And many times there are concerns with the CEOs or the founders of these companies. Um, but those concerns will come up in my conversations when I ask questions like, okay, well, um, what metrics are most important to you? And I hear new revenue. That's not a real sales leader if you're only concerned about new revenue, right? Or, or when I ask a question of what does your um, quarterly revenue look like? What's the mix of install base expansion versus new revenue? And it's really skewed in one way or the other for a really early stage company. To me, I'm like, mm, okay, tell me a little bit more about that. And if it's a non-issue, I'm like, okay. So we have a business leader who is not, when they are at 100 million or 250 million, they're not going to be able to think about those two books of business because they will be similar size and how you manage them, how you prioritize them, that kind of thing. So that's one example of a question, just really simple questions. But if you're a CEO and you have no idea about what you're not, you're not going to, you might know to answer, to ask that question, but you're not always really going to know what the good answer is because it's very nuanced and there's a lot of data and information and vocabulary and that you may or may not be familiar with. So when you're in those contexts and you're interviewing a team and you're getting answers like that um, to questions that you might ask, what are you ultimately kind of looking for uh, in terms of characteristics? Um, and, and this is obviously through the lens of this person's going to make it, this person's not going to make it based on my pattern recognition. What are those characteristics that tell you if it's one versus the other? Yeah, I think, I mean, that one is really clear to me. The The individuals who come to the call, suspicious, sort of closed-minded with, I mean, they don't say, what do you want? But they're like, what, what do you what do you want to hear? You know, like, what, what can we talk about type of thing versus the individuals who come to the call and they're excited to talk to someone who has this experience of where they want to go and what they want to be. And they have some questions. Like it's not, it's not that they're formally showing up with these questions, but they do have some questions like, oh my gosh, tell me about this or tell me about that. Or I'm having this challenge. 
And it's just really a fun conversation and an open dialogue. And, and there's no sense of like holding back. I mean, transparency is key, a key tenet to any of these types of conversations or relationships. And people who show up that way and they show up curious with passion, those are the ones who always, I mean, you're going to do better in life. You're going to do better in your career. You're going to do better in anything if you show up that way versus kind of closed off and like, no, you can't really help me or no, I don't, I don't, this is not my thing. I got it under control. We're good. This is what we're doing. Nobody has it under control in a company that's growing revenue at, you know, 90% year over year. Like that's impossible. You just don't. There's lots of things that you're not going to have the bandwidth to deal with. Yeah. So what I'm really hearing through that is, is curiosity and, and what it looks like in real life is does the person come to the meeting with the advisor that's here to help and view it as being called into the principal's office. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. that's kind of more the, what do you want from me? Uh, what are we here for? Uh, this yeah. I was told I had to do this. So like, here I am, I'm doing it. Like, what next? Um, yeah. That could be a, a response that you get. And that doesn't show curiosity. The right. other side of the equation, what you were describing is somebody who's like, oh my God, thank you. There is an amazing expert that was gifted to me that I can go and get help from. Like, I got a list a uh, mile long of questions to ask you, Krista. Like, yeah. please help me. <laughs> Like yeah. one very much clearly shows curiosity and engagement and like, I want to develop and I want to improve and I want to, you know, get to the next level. And one shows yeah. resistance and lack of curiosity. Yeah. And I think that there is a, a detail there that you might have somebody who shows up with that passion and curiosity, but it's not like, you, you know, they might not be a fit for the role. I will go back to the CEO and say, hey, this person really showed up in an amazing way. I, I think that they can make it or I, I'm not quite sure, but I'm not convinced they can't. And so here's like how I would think about surrounding that person with support because I mean, the CEOs are almost always, it's, it's pretty rare that I'm put into a situation of like, hey, I don't think this is the right person. Will you go check? Um, it's more of like, hey, go talk to my team. Tell me what you think, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so they come to it from a positive place in a positive point of view. And so if I can go back and say, hey, this person is, you know, showed up great, had great questions, but I'm not quite sure they're going to get there. So here's what I would do to make sure that you can continue to lean on this person who has been with you for so long and who has done all this with you. Like that's also a great outcome. Just a quick break in today's conversation to make sure that you're getting all the latest in PLG content from OpenView. First things first, if you haven't subscribed to Build in your favorite podcast app, make sure you do that now. We drop four episodes per month and subscribing is the best way to stay in the loop. And while you're at it, drop us a rating and review for the show so that others can find it as well. And secondly, did you know that I'm a YouTuber? I put out weekly videos on the latest and greatest in PLG with my show called the PLG 123. Every video is two minutes or less and features VC perspectives from yours truly on the latest in VC, SaaS, and of course, product-led growth. So find me on YouTube by searching Blake Bartlett and make sure to subscribe to my channel so that you don't miss a single video. Okay, now let's dive back into today's conversation. Yeah, and in, in addition to curiosity, another thing that strikes me here is how willing is somebody to change? Uh, and how do they view change? And that, that's, people talk about that a lot. You know, are you comfortable with change or not? But it's a different thing to sort of ask the very basic high level question and get a yes or no answer and be able to actually assess somebody on that. And so what do you think about, uh, is that an important part to you when you're doing some of these sessions is evaluating somebody's, you know, 
appetite towards and posture towards change or is that less important than curiosity? Yes, 100%. But on the change thing in, in particular, again, curiosity and openness to change kind of go hand in hand. And you can usually tell if somebody shows up not curious and then something in the conversation becomes pretty clear that they do not want to change whatever it is they're doing in any way, shape or form, um, which should be a flag for CEOs. Like, wow, I'm in a high growth company and I have somebody who wants to keep doing something the same way. Like that doesn't work. Just fundamentally that is going to clash, you know? But when I was in an operator role, one of the questions I always asked in my interview was, <clears throat> in my interviews with people, uh, was, are you open to change? And everybody said, oh yeah, yeah, I'm great for change. Blah, blah, I love blah, change. Blah. <laughs> right, I love change, it's great, you know? Um, and I And then I would say, well, I have yet to interview somebody who says that they don't love change or that they that they might not love it, but they can manage through it. And I would always say, before you really, truly think about taking this role, you need to have a long talk with yourself in the mirror and be really honest about how open you are to change. Because high growth companies are different companies every year. The company that you join one year is going to be, in many ways, a completely different company a year later. And being able to institute change and be a change agent, but also just to roll with change, both inside and outside your purview, whatever the scope of your role is, is so incredibly important. Um, and I think I, what I do see sometimes is you have, and I can even say that like, I, I was probably a little bit of this when I first joined Okta, where you have somebody who's, I came into Okta as a CCO and you, I had done the role, I'd done it all. I'd been at Salesforce for 14 years. I had this incredible experience. And you see some people who come in and it's really easy to just institute your playbook. And there were a couple of times where Todd, my, you know, my boss and the CEO of Octo was like, are you just doing your playbook or are you actually, and I was like, oh yeah, you're right. I'm not actually looking at what I'm just kind of doing my thing. And so it's also, you know, the onus is on us as leaders to really think like, okay, this is complete. Every time you go into a new role, this is different than my last one. It's a different company, different culture, different product, different customers, different everything. And your playbook will be different. Like you can take things from it, but don't do that. And how do you, because I, I agree that this is a really hard thing to actually get the truth on because yeah. everybody will say what you said, um, yeah. which is, yeah, I love change. It's great. Um so how do you, whether it's in an interview context, if you're bringing somebody new in, because that certainly applies here as well, or if you're you know, assessing your team for, do I have the team for the future? Like, how do you get to the root of that? Like, how do you actually find truth there versus just people giving the right answer in an interview? Yeah, um, I will ask, okay, I mean, there, the first thing I do, as I say, listen, you just gotta be honest with yourself. And I actually think that works because it, it underscores the gravity of what you're talking about. Like uh, you need to be honest with yourself. Are you really good with change and are you good at it? And can you manage it? And can you create it? Because if you can't, you will not be successful here. And just being really direct and upfront with people about that, because some people will say, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm not. It's like, I didn't really think about it, but maybe I'm not. It doesn't happen very often by nature of what they're interviewing for and they're interviewing for a startup. But um, the other things, the other questions that I will ask around this is tell me about a fundamental shift at your last company, whether it was a product pivot, it was, and these are go to market questions, but a product pivot, 
um, if it was a fundamental change in how you positioned your products, like how did you lead your team through that? Because, and I'll give you some context behind that. A lot of companies, these high growth startups go from selling feature function to value. And this is also an area where CEOs can really look and, and ask, their, ask themselves the question, can my current leader take me to the next place? Feature function is, oh, we have this, 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 and yeah, our competitor has that, 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 and here's kind of the use case it solves for you. Selling the value is a very different conversation, right? Like, here's what this is going to bring to your business from an efficiency perspective, from a security perspective, and it's a different person that you're talking to. And so, and, and particularly for a go-to-market leader, you know, going from it's zero to 50 is often that feature function sell, and sometimes even zero to 100, but then there's a shift where in particularly if you're going up market into larger enterprises where you have to start selling this differently. And so tell me about that process at company XYZ and what did you guys do and did you lead it and how did it go and what were the obstacles? Um, and you'll get a sense of, I mean, that's a very uh, specific example of have they done this, but the way that they talk about it, you will get a sense of if it was a pleasant experience or not. And if it was not, that's an indicator of, oh, okay, so maybe this person won't be able to work through this type of change that we'll have because you'll have those changes many times. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that a lot. And another one that uh, that sort of jumped into my mind as you're describing that is assuming that they're coming from uh, you know another startup or another uh, high growth company, it's like, hey, so it looks like you're at Company X for a handful of years. You joined and it was 100 employees. You're leaving now and it's 500 employees. Like that's a lot of growth. Like what was most challenging about that experience? Yeah. Uh, and just open-ended. And if like you start to hear things like, well, like, you know, like we never, like I wanted to have a plan that was the same plan the whole time through. And uh, and then, you know, it was just constantly changing things. And, you know, um, the dog was chasing the tail and like all these things, like obviously there could be some validity there if there's bad management. Yeah. But if like what you were saying, it's how they answer the question. It's the energy you're, you're seeing and your frustration that they're pointing to that will tell you what you need to know about, you know, are they comfortable with change or not? So yeah, yeah. going to those real life case studies and not just asking the explicit question, do you like change or not? But tell me yeah. about this experience. Tell me about this journey. Where was it most painful? Why was it most painful? How frequent yeah. was it painful? Um, yeah. That can really get you to the truth. Yeah. And I mean, the other big sign is because it got too big. And there are some companies, I mean, I was at Salesforce from 20 million to 3 billion, and we went from a couple hundred employees to 14,000 employees. For me, that was too big. That's different than a, than a, a than someone saying, oh, 500 employees or 250 employees was too big. Because if you're a 50 person shop, you're going to be at 250. If you're, you know, a high growth organization and, and you're having success, you're going to be 250 or 500 pretty quickly. And it'll happen in three or four years, most likely. So that is the, it got too big um, or the politics of it, because there's often in organizations like old guard, new guard, when it's time to sort of look at the leadership teams and shift and like, oh, these new people came in and blah, 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 blah. That's also a sign of I mean, maybe the new people really were terrible. Chances are not all of them were, but that is also a sign of like, hmm, how are you going to yeah. do when this happens to us? Okay, so wrapping it up here, um, you know, a lot of folks listening right now are those founders and leaders at younger companies, um, you know, companies that might be in that sort of couple million of ARR up to maybe, you know, 20 million of ARR or something like that. And they, they primarily have been focusing on getting their team in place for the first time ever. 
uh, and might not have asked themselves the question of, okay, great, I have them in seat, uh, but are they the right team for the future? And so if somebody's looking to you know, practice this uh, and embrace this kind of in real life today, but they've never done it before, what's a good starting point? <laughs> I'll say buckle up because you will be doing this for as long as you are CEO of this company. And just when you finish, you will start again. Um, which I think, you know, one of the companies I work with is um, a first-time CEO and co-founder team. And we had, I, I started with them and they were, they already knew that they needed to to make some changes in their leadership team. And, you know, they made one and they made two and he's like, okay, I'm done. And, and I said, no, you're not. Like something's going to happen in the next month and you're going to see, oh, now I got to do this. Because it takes a long time to find the right leaders. I mean, you're talking about the top leaders in your organization, your directs, and those are not quick hires, you know? Those are anywhere from three three months at the very like best scenario to a year. And in some cases, a year and a half to really find the right individual. So if you take that across exec team of six and just do the math, when just when you think you're done, there's going to be the one that you started with who you might have to go back and look at again, you know, or sort of the next level down. So I think that is the first thing, like just get make peace with it. Like this is part of your job. The same uh, CEO said to me the other day, he's like, I'm basically a glorified HR leader. Like it's all I do is people. I like I don't get to do the product and, the, you know, and I laughed and I said, there is some truth to that. Like, yeah, there are ways for you to extract yourself from much of this. And as you grow, you will. But really the key piece of it is the people piece. And it comes down to, like you said, the who. Yeah. And basically um, what you're saying there is that as founders, as CEOs, people need to be comfortable with change themselves because you're leading the organization that will never stop changing. And so yeah. your, your sort of uh, parting or your uh, advice of, um, buckle up because you're never going to stop doing this uh, is exactly right. And so um, so everybody listening right now, buckle up, um, <laughs> take notes on this episode, but uh, but yeah, lean into it because as you know, I've heard many people say there's there's kind of a direct correlation, uh, success in life in general, I think, but especially mm -hmm. success as, in a, as a leader in a growing organization like a startup. There is a direct correlation between how successful you are and how willing you are to have uncomfortable conversations and do uncomfortable yeah. things. And so this is yeah. front and center in that. And so buckle up, lean into it um, because it ain't stopping. Yeah. And specifically lean into your instinct. Your instinct is usually right. And if there's something like if you don't know where to start or you don't want to listen to your gut, um, there's something there, uh, you know, almost always. And it's, yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Perfect place to leave it. Well, Krista, thank you so much for joining us on the Build Podcast. This has been fantastic and I'm sure incredibly helpful to everyone listening right now. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun.